Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Welcome back, everyone, to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette, and I'm so delighted to be broadcasting out of Newsstand Studios in Rockefeller Center today. I have an incredible guest, and I'm so excited that she's sitting across the desk from me. But first, a word from our sponsors. Tanya Taylor, welcome to Newsstand Studios. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Now, I know everybody already knows Tanya Taylor because you have such an incredible fashion brand. Your presence is everywhere. You have dressed every major person, every celebrity, politicians for the past decade. But I want to also just tell everyone that you are not only this incredible fashion brand, you are the CEO and also the creative director of the brand. So not only is it your name, but it is truly everything about you. It's my baby. Yeah, it's it's my life. It's your <laughs> life. Well, I want to start at the beginning, Tanya, because when we talk about life and confidence, we always start at the very, very beginning. So you grew up in Canada. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and who Tanya Taylor was before she became a global fashion brand. So I grew up in Toronto, and I think it was really what formed my opinion on feeling like fashion should be more approachable because there's no fashion in Toronto. So oh, that's good to know. Growing, growing up as a kid, I was encouraged to be really creative. I was given free reign of the basement of my house to just paint on all the walls and kind of create like other worlds through like print and pattern and color. And so I kind of just felt like I had a really creative childhood. My dad worked for the Red Cross, so he lived all over the world and he would come back with fabrics, come back with experiences of different cultures. So I felt like I was really seeing myself outside of Toronto. And then my mom had a really interesting kind of impact on me. She ran a public company and she also would come home and do paper mache. So she had this like really kind of dual sides of her personality. And I think that's what I am now. And I realize you kind of become your mom a lot of times. (laughs) My Um, mom started this podcast. So certainly I I have become my mom for sure. I mean, listening, listening to your mom's intro, like just so sweet. So yeah, she really knew how to balance business and creativity. And I think growing up, I had an incredibly entrepreneurial family. Almost everyone in my family started their own businesses. And it was in media and radio and oil and gas and just whatever they wanted to invent and create. And what I really saw through that as a child is how being an entrepreneur allows you to build a family around your values Mm -hmm. and really kind of create a business that feels more than a job and that you really can put your passion into something you do every day. So as a kid, I kind of had that influence. And then I studied finance at McGill University for my undergrad and ended up going to Parsons in New York City to study fashion design because I did not know how to sew. I tried (laughs) desperately to sew a dress when I was at McGill. And instead, I put Velcro and all the seams and a model walked down the runway and it started falling off. And my mom said, you need to go to school. (laughs) You have to actually learn how to do this. Yeah, you have a passion for this. You need to study it. So I think I've always felt like my confidence was, it was slow. I was very shy, like very, very introverted, really nervous. My parents divorced when I was really young. So I think I was always trying to find my place Mm -hmm. between people and houses and passions. And so I only really came into my own when I started my company. And I felt like I could really 
be very clear in what I believed in and what I wanted to create. When you were doing all of that art as a child, was that sort of an escapist thing? You were talking a little bit about your parents divorcing in that moment. Did you feel like that was something you could do wherever you were, or was it just something you did at home? I only did that at home. That's funny. I've never thought of that. I was not even that artistic at school. Like, I kind of just would do the project that was assigned. I never really poured myself into something at school for art. At home, I was wildly imaginative. Mm -hmm. I would consider myself a builder. I would create 3D animals and put their heads on like fire little crackers from New Year's Eve and have them rotate. Like I was really finding myself through independent play, but also creating this world around me that felt very inspiring and very kind of supportive. Yeah. It's interesting because I do feel like that's something you hear a lot with raising children now mm. is about the lack of independent play and how we overschedule them. A friend of mine often says, you know, sometimes it's really good to just be bored. I grew up in Louisiana. We were kind of talking about this beforehand too, about growing up outside of New York City in places where an afternoon is spent just sort of kind of wandering around in yeah. Louisiana that was often being very, very hot as well. <laughs> but just wandering around creating and coming up with games and imaginative play. And I truly think in art, that's just such an important part is having that time and space. And in your case, it sounds like the basement to create. Yeah. And that you're not looking to have an end result Mm -hmm. or there's not really a purpose behind the creation, but you're really following an instinct. And I think as a child, following an instinct to solve a problem or following an instinct to build something that you're imagining that freedom, it opens your mind. And I think as adults, a lot of us don't have jobs that give that freedom to think or be creative. And I just knew I needed a role in my life where I could balance the rational thinking of building a brand, but really always keep a role that was really open-minded. When you're talking about the entrepreneurs earlier, about how everyone in your family was an entrepreneur, did you see a lot of success and failure? Because I often think with entrepreneurs, that's the best part about people. Yeah. You know, I've had Alexa Von Tobel on and some other fantastic entrepreneurs, and they talk about the failure piece of it being hugely important because once you're over it, you stop caring so much. Yeah, I would say there was more success than failure. <laughs> and so coming into fashion. Okay, it was so well done. But, them. <laughs> but also they had each other, right? Yeah. So I always think my mom and my grandfather got to work together every single day and they had two employees and then they had 5,000. Like they really scaled a company together and had that support system. And I starting this company by myself have always wished I had had a partner yeah. and I do in my mom. I still really include her in a lot, but it's different. And so I did. I saw the successes. I saw the trust kind of factor of entrepreneurship being really a big challenge where just assuming you can trust everyone is tough. And Mm. sometimes the setbacks that existed while they were scaling the company just were really hard on them personally. And as a kid, when you're watching your parents feel like they're putting their heart into something and it's not feeling... um, yielding fruit. Yeah, it's an interesting lesson. It's a really good lesson to see. And I think they're really honest, really vulnerable, really transparent with the ups and downs. And so I felt walking into it, I knew how high risk it was to start something, but I couldn't not. Like I'm one of those people that I'd rather fail trying than not try at all. And I think that every day. Yeah, that is a fantastic way to live life. So you got your business degree and then you went to Parsons. What happened after Parsons? 
So when I was at Parsons, I moved to New York. I did not know one person here. I had an apartment with like no curtains, a bed on the ground. It was... Do we all have this story from our early 20s? It was at a fifth floor walk-up because I think I might have lived next door. No, it was a very strange place near the Empire State Building. Oh, yeah, that can be an odd part of town. When you think about the most charming neighborhoods of New York, maybe not that neighborhood. But I didn't know. I put my finger in the middle of the map, and that's how I found the apartment. I said, something in the middle seems like it'll be the most logical. <laughs> and Easy to get around. <laughs> yeah. And I think that the first five years of living in New York were the most important in my life. Mm-hmm. It was a sense of discovery. I wandered the city alone, but I didn't feel lonely. Yeah. I felt part of a community for the first time, even though it wasn't formal. Like it just felt like the city made sense for me. So I knew I needed to meet people and I needed to learn more about the industry. So I applied for an internship with Mary-Kate and Ashley Olson. They were my age and I thought it was really cool that two 23-year-old girls were designing for someone they understood at both a contemporary price point of Elizabeth and James and also a designer price point for The Row. And I wanted to understand the difference between designer price point and contemporary price point and how you think about a customer and how you design from a personal instinct. So I started as an intern for full time for a year and a half Mm. and I did everything. I was so excited to have a job. Like I remember calling my dad and saying, I get to go pick zippers today. I I felt like that when I was 21 too. (laughs) I get to clean off the lunch table today, but it was just being in the actual place where I wanted to be. That's exactly right. Yes, I felt like I was at the epicenter of learning and people that inspired me. And I remember my parents being like, you have a finance degree, but like, whatever. If, if Get those zippers, if Tanya. If those zippers are really motivating you, then that's great. They just want to see their daughter feeling excited. Yeah. And so I then got hired to be on the design team for Elizabeth and James. And I really think it was a small startup. It was five people. I managed the finances for the design team. They did a lot of domestic production. So I understood how to make clothing. And then I really learned about the customer. And I was included in meetings with Saks and Neiman's and Intermix where they were giving feedback on the brand. So it was probably the best crash course startup experience you could have to then make me realize I really wanted to do that myself. And after three years of being there, that's when I started the brand with one employee. There's something to be said in those first five years of the network that you're creating, the things that you're seeing, not only putting those pins in place for people who are your age and are doing similar things, which I've always believed is one of the most amazing things about New York. I don't know if it's like this in every city, but the people that I grew up with in those first five years, my 21 through 26 year old years, are still very close friends and over time have actually evolved and created their own things as well, which is essentially what your path was. Yeah. So you decided to start and you decided to call it Tanya Taylor. Yeah. So talk to me about the first day. What does that look like? You put, put a pin in. Here we come, Tanya Taylor. What happens okay, next? Okay, well, you're Canadian, so you need to have a <laughs> office <laughs> to prove that you are starting a company. Oh, in is the that US. part of being Canadian? Yeah, That's you need a visa. Oh, you need to, a visa to right. work here. That was a big learning curve for me yes, when I I just caught up with you there. When I left Elizabeth and James, and I was like, I'm starting a company, and my husband's like, and you need a visa. I'm like, <laughs> the first day was pretty hilarious. It was at the corner of Crosby and Spring in that Starbucks. Yeah, of course. And Crosby it Baltazar. was with Will McLeod, who was my first employee who I love dearly still. And he and I sat in front of each other and I gave him a list of, you're doing the phones. I'm going to do finding the (laughs) office. You'll do the water cooler. I'll do the pens. And it was divvying up 
the most basic of startup tasks. Will said, I don't understand why I'm doing all the things you don't want to do. You're <laughs> no. like, I am the CEO of the no. brand. No, I actually, we were, we were like brother and sister for the first three years of building it together. I couldn't have done it without him. And I don't even know how we were able to accomplish all we did, but it was with so much passion and commitment. And it was really fun. And what was the differentiator for you? Why start your own brand? There are other brands you could have gone to, I'm sure. What was it about having your own brand that drew you there? I think I was motivated seeing other people who had their own brands that really could create distinctive ways of talking to a customer, designs that felt so them. And I felt like I loved painting. I wanted to paint prints. I loved color. I loved a contemporary price point. And I wanted the challenge of, like, I've always found myself throughout my life finding ways to really challenge myself. Mm -hmm. And I wanted the challenge of figuring out how to start something in New York. I love that you just said that, that you're the type of person who loves to find a challenge, because I do think that is such a huge piece in confidence. You know, yeah. so many people are scared to try something, and so they never really understand and learn about themselves that they're able to do things. And if they fail, that's okay, too. But yeah. it's really when you overcome that, either through going through failure or by on the other side, it becoming a huge success, you learn so much about yourself and you get so much more confidence. Yeah. And I think for me, I've had so many failures yeah. through the 10 years, <laughs> but... Where I've seen myself mature is when I would fail at the beginning, I would harbor the feeling of mm -hmm. that failure for a while. It would take me into kind of a self-doubt spiral. Mm -hmm. And now when I have a failure, I really do see it as kind of these stepping stones to learning and ways to find success somewhere else. Do you have any tips for our listeners who might find themselves in that self-doubt spiral? Anything that you do? Is there a song you play? Do you dance around the house? This might sound crazy, but um, I used to think when I was failing and succeeding that it was uncontrollable. Mm -hmm. And I have found that when I've made a bad mistake or if my mind is going to a spiral of something that we weren't successful with, I can compartmentalize it as a part of me versus all of me. Mm -hmm. And... I call it a name. <laughs> so I have so I have a part of me that's called Nancy. Nancy. And why I've, Nancy? <laughs> like negative Nancy. Oh, like yeah. I feel like it's a really basic way of putting it, but I can see when I'm thinking in a style that is pessimistic or feels limited or feels just not very powerful that that's just a side of me that comes out, but I can control getting back to my more positive, optimistic, like open-minded happy side yeah but it's okay that like nancy's involved once in a while and i like that it makes me feel like i'm in control of different moods and mm -hmm. different ways of feeling successful or not and it's been helpful i write in my second book about the power of positivity mm -hmm. which is certainly not only something i can hear in your voice and see from sitting across from you but also in your dresses yeah. and the clothes that you make i'm such a believer in the mental fortitude that comes with pushing yourself into the positive as much as possible. You know, it can't be 24-7, but I do also see so many people, they're their own worst critic. Yeah. They're their own self-doubter. You know, they have the Nancy and Nancy runs supreme over their entire right. life. I love calling something and almost identifying it yeah. because I do think that's probably a very helpful way to look at it. Anything else you do? So you have Nancy, what else do you do to stay in the positive when things aren't going well? 
If I can fit in a night of dancing, like oh. I am a better person for weeks after. So That's I'd great. say I like night. I love time with my girlfriends. I love time with my husband. And we fit in at least once every two weeks, like a fun night out. Yeah. And it's hard when you have two kids, but it is what grounds me mm -hmm. to how amazing the city is for social experiences yeah. and people excite me. So if I'm feeling spirally, I got to get out. I got to yeah. talk to someone new. I need to remember how grateful I am for what I do and get to learn from someone else's experiences. And it quickly works. Yeah. Okay. So dancing, I'm going to put that on the list. <laughs> dancing out with Tanya twice a week. I'm going to add myself to that, that <laughs> okay, list. Great. I'm, I'm definitely a night owl too, so I will meet you there. I know, I've seen you out. <laughs> I know, it's definitely true. I do love I love going out, and I feel like that's so much a part about living in New York City. And my mom said it best, which I've never forgotten. She said to me one night when I was going out for an auction and then meeting friends out after, so probably I wouldn't even be out to dinner until 10 o'clock at night because I don't get off stage most nights until about 9.45. And she said, what I love so much about watching you in New York is that you're fulfilled at home with your children and your work, but you also have a very adult life. Yeah. And she said, sometimes I think that people, when they become adults, think that it has to be one or the other yeah. and it can't be both. And I think if that is appealing to you, you can find it wherever you are. And it is important to foster that in yourself. Yeah, I feel that way too. And that's what makes me happy on both ends of the spectrum of being an amazing, like I feel very confident as a mom. Yeah. But I find my experiences as being a friend or being out in the city helps me feel that too. Like they feed each other. Yeah. I always say that my life is complex and inspiring. And it's, <laughs> and that's scheduling is complex. Yes. But I wouldn't have it any other way. I right. get to learn something. Like I get to learn a lot every single day. And I love having friend groups that are so different. Yes. I really have an interest in having friends in tech versus philanthropy versus international development. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes me feel confident is having kind of a little knowledge of different areas of life and feeling inspired by different kinds of people. And I feel like you weave that back into your business too. Yeah. So five years in, you've started your new business. It's launching. What happens over the evolution of, you know, you're at Starbucks and you're dividing things up with Will to the next sort of five to 10 years? What takes you through that? I know there have been some real highlights along the way. Yeah. I think year three was a really special year. We were picked up by major retailers. We were part of the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund. And which how did that happen? I just applied. I applied to the CFD Vogue Fashion Fund. At that time, we had had one fashion show in Fashion Week. It was at the MoMA, mm -hmm. um, and that was from pure hustle. I was told by a friend that if you want to be seen or make a splash in New York Fashion Week, have your show somewhere that represents you and that just blows people away. I was like, well, that's not that easy. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, is that all? Yeah, okay. I was like, oh, so on the moon. Um, so he was like, where's your favorite place? I was like, the MoMA. He's like, have your show there. So I called the restaurant, which is so naive of me, saying, <laughs> hi, could I have my show in the museum? They're like, well, no, you need to you know, speak to the museum. And I spent six months incessantly calling all of the corporate sponsors because they each were given two opportunities a year to host events. Amazing. And I knew that they probably weren't using them. Yeah. And finally, J.P. Morgan said yes. And 
they hadn't seen the brand yet because there wasn't a brand. So they just said, make sure that there's people with clothes on. Yeah. <laughs> that, like, it's a respectable Welcome to New show. York where you actually have to specify that. <laughs> yeah. I have been to shows where that's not the case. So I actually... <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah. it's, they've had experience. Exactly. Probably. In the art world, you never know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And so we had it there and that got people's attention. Like that was a... When I look back, it was a huge opportunity to make a splash. And I poured myself creatively into it. I just imagined... The collection was inspired by, um, my mom lives in Barbados, so inspired by the Sandy Lane Hotel in Barbados in the 1960s. And it was like, I transformed the lobby to feel like that. I had the waiters walking around with little goldfish in like little goldfish bowls with multicolored drinks. Like I just, my mind exploded. And I didn't know what you were supposed to do because I was so new that I just did what I felt right. Then that got me into the Vogue Fashion Fund, which was mentorship with Anna Wintour and Jenna Lyons and Diane von Furstenberg and many others. And I was 25 at that time. So standing in front of those people and they say, who are you? Was nerve wracking. Yeah. And I didn't know who I was at that time. I was going to say at 25, that's a really big question to answer. Right. I wasn't married yet. I was really still figuring myself out and felt still like an outsider in the city and the industry so it was hard to articulate but it was such a good very terrifying experience that almost jump-started my business i think it allowed me to almost edit out two years of figuring myself out Mm -hmm. through those six months of having to present and after that we had Saks and neiman's and a lot of great stores pick us up and then the team now is 38 people And it's been such a kind of amazing adventure of how different stages of business also challenge you. Mm -hmm. And I look back at that time, I think we were three or four people during those first five years. And those were, it was family. It was just different. (laughs) I think about how organized we are now versus then. We'd have like fittings at 11 o'clock and thought it was early, (laughs) like PM. And I just really appreciate the opportunities I had. I think I was just really young. And maybe looking back, I would have done it differently now, but I also wouldn't be who I am now if I hadn't been scared and challenged and built a lot of social anxiety during those moments that I've been able to solve over the last five years. What has happened in the fashion industry as it pertains to where you started and where it is now? Because you have been in the fashion world through some very disruptive years. Mm -hmm. You know, it looked 10 years ago, 15 years ago, completely different than it does now. I mean, the way that people purchase. You were D2C. Are you still direct-to-consumer or? No, so we have about 70% of our business is wholesale. So it's 100 specialty stores and then major retailers. And then about 30% of it is our own e-com. We're opening our first store in August um, on Madison and 77th, which we're so excited about. I think what I've seen is that brands that have true values that they've stayed consistent with have been able to ride the storm of DTC versus wholesale versus inventory management issues, COVID impact. Mm -hmm. And we have just stayed very true to an aesthetic that is feminine and uplifting and, you know, approachable, inclusive. And I think it's allowed us to just have that customer relationship that hasn't faltered. So the 10 years has been definitely small brands working, big brands then being kind of the dominant forces, luxury fashion and what that means to American contemporary has been a conversation. 
But now I feel like it's really an exciting time. It's really how much a brand knows their customer and how they want to talk to them. And I love our customer. Like I love, love getting out on the road and being in a change room and having two women, this happened to me in Dallas, two women tried on the same dress. And one of them said, I'm going to wear it to the beach. And then the other one said, I'm going to wear it to a wedding. (laughs) And I was like, this is so cool. Like it's not hypothetical information. You're literally in front of people. And COVID really made that challenging. Yes, of course. I designed for a real person and I couldn't get in front of them for two years. So I'm really just grateful for where we are now and where the brand is going to grow because we've developed those relationships that are really authentic. Going back to what you were just saying about designing for the real person, one thing that you were an early adopter of was sizing inclusivity. Yeah. How did that conversation happen? Where did that evolution start? And you've become such an advocate for it over time. Yeah, I started it six years ago now. We started expanding our size range to the size 22, and it was very rare for our price point and for where we were selling. And it started from a personal experience of my mom, who was size 18, size 20 when I was growing up. And Her creative weekend self was happy and she was wearing stretchy leggings and comfortable clothing. And when she had to get dressed to go lead the company on Monday morning, I would just see her confidence shrivel. And it was so hard. It ruined her day. Like I can only imagine if she couldn't find something that she could feel herself in, that trying to walk into a boardroom of all men and feel confident is impossible. So... That was kind of a underlying experience that I had my whole life. And then A.D. Bryant, who was on SNL, we got teamed up through Glamour, actually, magazine. And she had a really similar story where she felt that, you know, she's so talented, so creative. She's the same age as I am. And when she went to go on stage and perform, there was a rack that was limited for what she could wear and for her to feel her best self. And I felt like I could fix that. So... Without having a playbook of how to, we hired one tech designer that knew how to pattern make for extended sizing, and we figured it out ourselves. And a loyal customer, a big part of our business, and an important opportunity because there's just not a lot of brands that are really playing in this like happy fashion space that's quality and value and feminine. It feels like it's still kind of an education around that this customer matters. Yeah, it's amazing because I don't think you can really understate how much clothing is armor in many ways. Yeah. And especially now looking back in such a glaring omission in the fashion industry of an entire population of people who are living in a different size, just want clothes that look good. You know, you look back on that and you think, why did it take so long for us to get there? And I love that you have a personal tie to that story too and really understand what that confidence piece is. Because I truly believe across the board, clothes are, especially as women, something that can give you confidence. Absolutely. You know, we all have that dress. Certainly I have those auction dresses when I get on stage that I know if I'm in them that I feel fearless in them. And we all know what it feels like when something doesn't fit the way you want it to and how that doesn't feel good or or right and you feel uncomfortable when you wear it day in and day out. So I'm sure that so many people love that your colorful, happy, inspiring prints are on their bodies and making them feel good. 
Yeah, there doesn't need to be differences. Like when you think back to that customer shopping on a different floor, yeah. it feels archaic. Yes. Like as if two girlfriends are going to go to a I store yeah, and go to different floors. Of course. And so I think we've just tried to really bridge our marketing and kind of our product imagery to make it just feel like it's all within the same language. Color plays such a huge part of your story from your early days, obviously, up until everything that you make and everything that I see coming out. If there's a dress on someone, I can almost immediately tell that it's a Tanya Taylor dress Aww. just because of the patterns and the prints are always different than anything you see. Do you still hand paint all of the designs? I try. I, I feel like we have a team that also hand paints. And when I can, I'm absolutely putting it in the collection. Like in every, <laughs> <That's mo> <laughs> <laughs> in every moment I can paint, I'm like, and it's on a dress. Um, <laughs> it's an important part of my expression. And color to me is all about mood and confidence. Like when you want to hide the colors you wear versus the times that you want to feel like seen or you want to feel really powerful. I definitely associate color with memories and with a way of expressing personality. Yeah. In the past couple of years, we've bled this into giving back, mm -hmm. which I love. I know that organization Public Color is very close to my heart because I've taken their auction for many years. Oh, amazing. But that's just one of the many nonprofits that you're working with. But speak about how painting and your painting parties is sort of reaching out and giving back to communities. Yeah. So I don't know. I think maybe to the point of wanting to get together with girlfriends and have something to do. I started a painting party five years ago that's called Color Therapy. And it is so much fun. We've done it with people we know. We've done it with 400 people that we don't know. We've done it at hospitals for pediatric patients at MSK. And it doesn't matter where you are in life. You can enjoy this class. And what it is is a canvas that I ask 20 questions about the memories of your life and you pick colors that are associated with. So the first question that always gets people going is color of your first kiss, which oh, <laughs> what spicy. would you first be? <laughs> Like, uh, I can't reveal like that black. on podcast. <laughs> yeah. Black? I don't think it would have been black, but uh, I no comment. Okay, this no, is, no you comment. Tell me we don't know yet. who the first guess is. Um, mine was with a boy named Mitchell Coleman. I'll give it a light pink. Hey, Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> um, then you go through family and your feelings about success, feelings of confidence. What does that color look like for you? And you may have never met the people beside you, but when you get up at the end and you've painted your canvas and you see other people's kind of color map of their lives, it's really cool. It feels like something maybe you haven't thought of before. So we did that and I think there's a therapeutic element to it. So we decided to redesign the hospital curtains at Memorial Sloan Kettering. It's a hospital that's very dear to my heart. And the pediatric floor specifically, I recognize that siblings were always like kind of hanging out because yeah. they had to. Let's get an activity where siblings and the patients could really collaborate and do something together because they want to feel like kids. Yeah, yeah. And so we started hosting painting classes there. That's amazing. And I saw that you did actually the curtains in the pediatric ward as yeah. well. So they're all sort of bright and brightly colored. Yeah, super colorful. We also did headscarves for women on their first day of chemotherapy. And we took all the art from the kids and now it's in the lobby of MSK. So it's just like amazing. a nice way for people to feel like they're making something that's really positive. Yeah, and kind of all goes back to you in the basement as a child, really. You know, yeah. you think about oh, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not to come completely full circle. No, I like that. But the other thing that I've noticed in the past, really like sort of probably five or six years, you've also become very political 
mm-hmm. as well. And you were instrumental in the, you know, it only takes two minutes to vote. I remember yeah. that campaign. Um, tell us a little bit about that and how that all sort of happened for you. Yeah, I've always thought that if you build a voice, regardless of what industry, you have a responsibility to share values. And I felt that in September of, oh my gosh, 2020, it was a really important time that was more important than showing a collection at Fashion Week was giving an audience to teach them how to register to vote. So it was a fun idea that ended up being a three-week project. We whipped this together. And I thought, let's take our slot on the calendar of New York Fashion Week and have everyone see that our name's there and they can click on a video that would emerge. Usually it's models, you know, walking and new clothing. And instead, let's ask all of our friends that, you know, have audiences or celebrities to film really mundane, super, super boring things that they do at home that take less than two minutes so that we can say to people, if you're watering your plants or if you are throwing a ball to your dog, you can register to vote. And then we had an action button on our website so that people could go understand if they have been registered or how they can. And we registered like tens of thousands of people. And that felt really successful to me. That was a interesting pivot. And it was because it was coming out of COVID, we weren't going to put on a great show. So why not not do something half well and instead put our energy towards activating and creating awareness to something we cared about? Amazing. I love that it for you has become not only that you're here, but you're doing so much to help so many people and educate them along with everything else you're doing as well. So you have your first bricks and mortar store opening. Yeah. Tell us about why you finally decided to make that change, because this is a huge departure for you. Yeah, it's a huge departure. It is, again, that like seeking of challenge. (laughs) This is a real one. can't stop. (laughs) Got to keep looking. I know. I I think people in my company are like, okay. We have wanted this for a long time, but would have probably five years ago and then with COVID needed to take a pause of when we would. So I wanted it in New York. I wanted it in my backyard. I really want to be at the store as much as I can. And I've thought about how I actually want to be there every Friday afternoon for any questions and like customer interactions. And then on like Instagram live, be able to show our best sellers of the week and just make it feel like an extension of the brand and the team that we have in our New York office. Then I thought about neighborhood and I was like, okay, Upper East Side versus Soho for New York. Kind of fascinating differences out of COVID for retail. And I really am excited to learn from a consistent customer and a local customer. And so we are opening at 77th and Madison because I feel like that woman is discerning. She's traveling. She knows what she likes. And she's like really aware of how she wants her body to look and what her relationship with fashion is. Mm -hmm. And I just want her to give me like a boot camp. (laughs) (laughs) Like I want to learn from her. I want to be challenged by her and inspired by her. So like that's why that location mattered a lot. It sounds like that might be more of a five-day-a-week project for you. (laughs) It's great. It's a place to go. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. Um, Well, it's been such a pleasure having you on here, Tanya. I can't even tell you. If you could pass along any information to a burgeoning entrepreneur or somebody who wanted to start their company and is wavering with the confidence to do it, can you give them a tip or two? Just anything that you can think of to get them through that hump. I think my tip has a lot to do with also how you have fostered an amazing sense of community around you. I think when you start having the courage to ask questions and to build mentorship around different areas of the business you you know you're not good at 
is the key to growth. And so many people are willing to give advice. And I feel like when I look at you from the outside, you have this consistent group of cheerleaders. Yeah. And it's personal, it's professional, but like the more you can do that in New York when it might not be the city you grew up in, the better you'll feel supported and ready to kind of grow. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't say enough about that because we didn't necessarily grow up in the era where women were taught to cheerlead for each other. Right. We kind of discovered that many of us on our own. Yeah. And I think because of that, it's even more precious. And it has been for me, probably the single most important thing in my career because there are moments that are great and you want the people who are cheering you on, but there are also moments that are terrible. Absolutely. And you need the people who are coming to your door with at least one bottle of wine, if not three, (laughs) um, who are ready to sit down and not only let you cry, but then help you figure out the next step. I know. Which is equally important. And you're right. In our generation, I think there's a fear to ask for help. Yeah. And so, and in this next generation, if that's the only thing we can pass on is that overcoming that fear opens possibilities. Yeah. Absolutely. Tanya, this has been such a wonderful Thank episode. Thank you for having I've really me. enjoyed talking to you and hearing more about yourself. Tell us, aside from your new store on Madison, where can we find you on social, website? Give us everything yeah. that we need to know about Tanya on Taylor. On social, we're most active on Instagram. So it's at Tanya Taylor. And then we're at Saks. We're at Neiman's Shop Up. Our own site is my favorite. We're relaunching in a week. Oh, it's exciting. TanyaTaylor.com. So you can learn more about the brand and kind of get a little deeper into what we're about. Well, I know I will be checking it out and I will be one of your first shoppers in the Madison store, no question. (laughs) Well, you always look so beautiful when you wear us. Thank you for your support. It's not hard. I'll tell you that. Thank you. (laughs) Everyone, again, thank you for listening. My name is Lydia Finette. I am coming to you live from Rockefeller Center and Newsstand Studios. I can be found on LydiaFinette.com, also at LydiaFinette on Instagram. So feel free to follow along. And I'm going to leave you with one last question inspired by Tanya. What color is your confidence. DM Tanya, DM me, put it on Instagram. When we do this episode, we cannot wait to hear. And I look forward to seeing you all next week.